Today's sermon comes from John 13, 18 through 30. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Jesus, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you are doing, going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give some to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. When we experience betrayal, whether it's through actions or words, we, we typically will say things like, he broke my heart, or she hurt my feelings, or it was like getting punched in the gut. We'll use language that explains the pain of betrayal. There's researchers who have studied this pain of betrayal, the pain of, of social rejection. And the results they found are fascinating. There was a, a researcher, they did a study where they, they basically simulated conditions of, of betrayal, of rejection. And they simulated conditions of physical pain, and they, they hooked both people up to a brain scanner to see how the brain responds to Betrayal and rejection and how the brain responds to physical pain. And uh, the results were striking. This researcher, researcher said he was, he was looking at two scans. 
two brain scans. Uh, and one was taken during simulated conditions of betrayal and rejection. And the other scan was taken during simulated conditions of some sort of physical pain. And he said, as they were up next to each other, you couldn't tell the difference. And the point was that the, that the brain experiences betrayal and rejection of a heart being broken in a very similar way that it experiences physical pain like breaking a leg. And the point is that betrayal is painful. It's real. And, and some of you are in the, maybe in the midst of it right now where you're experiencing some form of betrayal. Some of you uh, have experienced betrayal in the past and you're still flooded with anger and bitterness over how you were betrayed. Years ago, maybe decades ago, you haven't been able to let it go. Some of you feel a tremendous amount of guilt in your heart over how you betrayed someone in the past. And maybe you haven't been able to shake that guilt. And then some of you are checked out right now because you, don't, you can't identify a time you've been betrayed and can't identify a time that maybe you've betrayed someone. Wherever you fall on this spectrum, this passage is gonna do two things. It's gonna give you comfort and hope in the midst of betrayal. And I believe it's gonna open your eyes if you fall into the place of, I don't really get betrayal, it's gonna open your eyes to a greater understanding of what betrayal actually is. And therefore, how Jesus conquers it. So how does Jesus conquer betrayal? To answer this, we're going to look at the pain of betrayal, the cause of betrayal, and then the end of betrayal. First, the pain. Uh, if you've ever seen medieval, medieval paintings of the Last Supper, which is where we're at here in John 13, if you've ever seen paintings of the Last Supper, uh, they usually get it wrong. Because typically what you'll see in a painting of this last Passover meal that Jesus enjoys with his disciples, you'll see a picture of Judas in the painting that makes him the obvious traitor. It's, you know, by what he's wearing, by his facial expression, by the money bag in his hand. It just, he stands out as clearly the, the, the one who's betraying the, the traitor in the mix. And that's just not the case in this story. In fact, after Jesus tells his disciples in verse 21 that one of them is going to betray him, look what verse 22 says. They looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. So they looked around. They didn't go, oh, yep, we always thought it was Judas. I just, the way he carried himself. No, they looked around. They had no idea who this could be. And even after Jesus says to Judas in verse 27, what you're going to do, do quickly. Look what verse 28 says. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that Jesus was telling them to buy, buy food for the feast or to go feed the poor or to do something for the poor. They had absolutely no idea that Judas was the traitor. Now, why is this so important to pick up? Why does John go to a great extent so that you see that? 
Because Jesus was not betrayed by an enemy. Yes, he would become an enemy. Jesus was betrayed by an intimate friend. And that's what John brings out in this passage several times by quoting what Jesus says. Look at what he says in, in verse 18. Jesus says, I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate bread, ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This is a quote from Psalm 41.9. It's a Psalm of King David. Listen to what Psalm 41.9 says. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. See, Jesus is making it clear that he's betrayed. He's being betrayed by an intimate friend. And then again, in verse 26, so Peter motions to uh, John, the beloved disciple next to Jesus and says, you know, ask Jesus who it is. John says, Lord, who is it? And then look what Jesus says to him in verse 26. It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. This action was loaded with meaning in the first century. The host of a feast, which Jesus is the host here at the Passover meal, would, would commonly take a piece of bread, dip it in a bowl, and as a, as a mark of honor and friendship, give it to a guest. And so Jesus is, is as a mark of honor and friendship, giving this morsel of bread to Judas, and he had to have been close enough that Jesus could hand it to him. It's possible that Judas was on his left side at the place of honor. The point that is coming out is that Jesus was betrayed by an intimate friend. That's why verse 21 says Jesus was troubled in spirit. You know, you, you may think as we, as we read this, and, and the disciples maybe as well thought, betrayal, uh, you know, not a big deal for Jesus. Here, here's, here's the king who has calmed a storm, <laughs> raised the dead in Lazarus, fed the hungry, done all these, all these things. And so you might think, well, then, I mean, just a little betrayal, that's not going to affect Jesus. And the answer is no. It did. He was troubled. There was anguish on his face over his betrayal. And of course, a betrayal that would lead to crucifixion. But it hurt. It caused deep pain. The worst feeling in the world is knowing you have been used and lied to by someone you trusted. That's betrayal. The saddest thing about betrayal is that it never comes from your enemies. It always comes from someone who is trusted. Always comes from a friend. That's the nature of betrayal. It's dark. It's evil. That is why at the end of this section in verse 30, John says what? And it was night. He says that with great purpose. It was dark. The darkness of evil, the malicious intentions of Satan were closing in on Jesus in this betrayal. Now, I just want to make two very strong points of application here coming from this. Number one, if you've been betrayed, which Every person here has been betrayed at some point to some extent. It might be super minor. It might be major. If you're married, can I just say it? You've been betrayed. That's what happens in marriages. And we're going to see because we're going to see the cause of betrayal. We kind of use this as a word that is some people experience. We all have to some degree. If you've experienced betrayal, 
Don't minimize the pain of it. Don't minimize the hurt of it. Don't convince yourself, I just gotta get over this. It's not a big deal. It's just a, it's just a little betrayal. The point is, no, it's painful. And your Lord and Savior, if you know Jesus, when he experienced it, it was painful from an intimate friend. Healing always, healing always begins with naming what is the truth, with embracing the pain, with acknowledging this hurts. Second point I would make application-wise is that if you've been betrayed, you're not alone. You're not alone. Jesus himself, fully God, fully man, was betrayed, felt the pain of it, felt the hurt of it. And so when you're betrayed, you're not alone. Jesus understands, he sympathizes. So how does Jesus conquer betrayal? First, he experiences the pain of betrayal himself. He experiences it so that he can give voice to your betrayal and give voice and understanding to your betrayal. But second, if we understand how he conquers it, we have to understand what causes it. So what's the, what's the cause of betrayal? And to answer this, we're gonna look at Peter in verses 37 and 38. Because Peter betrayed Jesus, and Jesus foretells it in verses 37 and 38. Look at what he says. Peter says, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Tragically, Peter's boast here that he will never deny Jesus reveals a, a gross ignorance of human weakness. That Peter's good intentions and that Peter's self-assessment vastly outstrip his strength. He, he overestimates his strength. He underestimates his weakness. Now, now, Peter had good intentions. You can't fault him for that. In fact, a little bit later here in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is getting arrested, Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest, okay? Wrong action, but good intentions. He wanted to protect his Lord. The problem is Peter didn't understand his weakness and his sinfulness. He didn't understand it. He overestimated his strength. You know, good intentions in a secure room after a good meal, that's where Peter is right now in the upper room with Jesus. Right, good meal, good food, secure room. Good intentions are a lot less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob, which is where Peter's gonna find himself pretty soon. Peter's ignorance of his own weakness and his overestimation of his strength led to this prideful independence that we see with Peter that says, I can do it. Jesus, I'm never gonna betray you. I'll never deny you. I can do it. You, you see this prideful independence out of Peter and it's there because he doesn't understand how weak he is and how susceptible he is to sin and to betrayal. That pride comes before the fall not too long from now. In fact, probably a couple hours from this point, Peter will find himself in a dark garden with Jesus, with a hostile mob that has come to kill Jesus and arrest him. And so Peter, facing his own death, what does he choose to do? To lie and to deny Christ 
and to preserve his life. You see, he had great intentions, but he didn't realize how weak he was. And so his prideful independence led him to preserve self. That's the essence of betrayal. And this is where I want to get betrayal down to what everyone in here goes, oh, yes, I've done that. Yes, I've experienced that. The essence of betrayal is this. I'm willing to hurt you to get something for myself. That's it. I'm willing to hurt you, friend, trusted person, to get something for myself. For Peter, it was I'm willing to lie about Jesus and deny him to avoid suffering and death, to get comfort. For Judas, it was 30 shekels of silver. I'm willing to betray Jesus to get wealthy, to get rich, right, to get money. But that's the essence of betrayal. Robert Hansen, anybody remember that name? Robert Hansen was an FBI agent with the United States who from 1979 to 2001 served as a spy for Russian intelligence services. For 22 years, he spied with the Russians against America. And after he was finally found out, 22 years later in 2001, they began asking questions. In fact, author David Wise um, got to spend some time with the, uh, the psychiatrist. His name was uh, David Charney, who evaluated Robert Hansen after he got caught. Because everyone wanted to know, why did Hansen betray America? 22 years of it. What in the world would cause you to do that? What's interesting, over those 22 years, Hansen received $1.4 million from the Russians for his information. And of all the motives that you could figure out of why he might do this, Hansen pointed to financial pressure. Listen to what David Charney, who was the psychiatrist who evaluated him, said, he said, Hansen wanted money for one reason, to assure his wife that he was not a failure. He goes on to say this, Bonnie, Hansen's wife, was the one person who brought life into his life. She was the last person he would want to think he was a failure. He reached to, pr to prove to her he was a good provider and good husband so that when she would express wishes for various things, he would always buy them for her. He felt it was necessary to sustain his image in her eyes as successful. That put him into a financial corner because he agreed to take on various financial burdens by buying a house out of his reach financially in Scarsdale. It's not that it's wrong to say he did it for the money. You have to go deeper and ask why he wanted the money. Why did Robert Hansen get into a corner financially? Because he had to keep up his reputation with his wife because that was the one person in the world whose opinion mattered. Now, you hear that, and you might go, that's ridiculous. He betrayed his country for 22 years so that he could buy his wife's stuff and maintain his reputation. The fact that we have trouble even believing that is evidence of the point that we don't understand how weak we are, how susceptible we are in the heat of battle to make decisions to preserve self. That's how strong, that's how weighty the gravity of addiction to self is, that a man like this would betray his country for a large sum of money, but ultimately for his own image and reputation with his wife. 
that this addiction to self runs deep. And so betrayal begins with understanding your weakness and your sin that gets expressed in the form of betrayal, which is simply, I'm gonna hurt you to get something I want. That's betrayal. And that leads to prideful independence, which is I can do this. I don't need accountability. I've got it covered. I'm strong. If you've been participating in community Bible reading, we've been reading through the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel chapter 16 gets at the core of, of the issue of prideful independence. Because God, through his prophet Ezekiel, begins speaking to his people, Israel. And he, and he tells them about their life in Ezekiel 16. And he starts and he says, when you were born, your cord wasn't cut. No one had compassion on you. You weren't washed. You were tossed into an open field. He, he equates Israel to a, to a baby that gets abandoned in a field. And then he says, but I came and I saw you wallowing in your blood and I picked you up and I rescued you and I washed you and I took care of you and I made you flourish. And then he says, uh, you, then you grew up and you got to be of age and I spread my love over you and I made a vow to you and I made a covenant with you and I washed you and I adorned you and I made you beautiful. And then verse 14 of Ezekiel 16. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. In other words, he says, you became so beautiful, Israel, so fruitful, so successful that the nations all looked at you and were in awe of who you were. And then verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown. You became enamored with your beauty and your success and you began taking credit for it and operated independently. See, prideful independence, prideful independence is forgetting that any beauty any success, any competence that you have is from the Lord. And once you've taken beauty, competence, success and owned it for yourself and run independently, listen, you will betray at that point. Because at that point, independent from the Lord, you have no choice but to use that beauty, that success and that competence to get what you want at the expense of others. That's betrayal. And that's what prideful independence produces. If I can just say frankly, I think one of the greatest dangers for a congregation like this, like Christ Church East, is independence. You're a competent, generally successful, fairly beautiful group of people. And the danger and the temptation is to take that competence, to take that success, to take that beauty and to own it for yourself and function like an independent operator. And here's the danger. It's hard to detect. When, when God wrote to, to his people in Ezekiel, especially Ezekiel 16, here's the danger. Israel thought they were doing just fine. They hadn't denied God. 
They hadn't denied Yahweh. They were professing his name. In fact, there were false prophets that were saying, don't listen to that cat Ezekiel. He don't know what he's talking about. You're doing just fine. Look at you. You're beautiful. You're successful. You're competent. You're doing all the right sacrifices. You're going to church. You're fine. That's what was going on in the book of Ezekiel. And yet, God says, no, you were operating independently. You, you were trusting in your own success and your own competence. So you say, if, it, if it's hard to diagnose, if it's dangerous because you can, you can you know, profess Christ and you can do all, go through the motions, but you trust in your own beauty, your success and your competence, if it's so dangerous and it's hard to detect, then how do you know? What's the evidence of prideful independence? I think it's prayerlessness. I think that's the great evidence of of prideful independence is a prayerlessness. We're not a praying church. Now I say that recognizing that some of you are, you're prayer warriors. You're gifted intercessors. And, and, I, and I applaud that. And some of you are doing that, but I'm speaking as a church. We're not a praying church. We're not. And, and here's the, Here's what beautiful, competent, successful people do with that kind of um, indictment. We say, well, gonna, we're gonna start a prayer time because that's what beautiful, competent, successful people do. We strategize really well about something to do, a program to fix it. Now, there's nothing wrong with starting a prayer time. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with a program. It's a good thing. But prayerlessness is not ultimately a programmatic problem. Prayerlessness is a heart problem. It's a heart problem that says, I, I can do this. I can figure this out. I can take care of it. And it's that prideful independence that leads to betrayal. And it's that prideful independence that comes out of a lack of understanding how weak we are and how susceptible we are to this addiction to self and how strong that pull is and how strong that gravity is. Our good intentions and our self-assessment vastly outstrip our strength. So if that's the case, if, if prayerlessness, if prideful independence is a heart problem, what's the solution? What's the end of betrayal? How do you overcome betrayal? How does Jesus overcome betrayal or conquer betrayal? Look at verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Lots of glorification going on in those two verses. What's happening? Well, notice it says the son of man is glorified. Why that title, son of man? Well, outside of the New Testament, in the Old Testament, son of man is associated with glory. In fact, Daniel chapter seven, verse 13, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there will come one like a son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom. So outside the New Testament, son of man is associated with glory. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
Son of man is associated with suffering. And we see here in the Gospel of John, these two things collide. That the greatest display of glory, the greatest revelation of who God is, is in the shame of the cross. That glory and suffering collide. And that we see the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ primarily in the shame of the cross. That Jesus Christ was betrayed for you. That he was betrayed for you. Which means that he's betrayed for you for the forgiveness of when you betray others, which everyone has done to some degree. And he was betrayed so that he could identify with you when you are betrayed. Jesus Christ was betrayed for you. And he conquers betrayal by becoming the one who was betrayed on the cross. And yet, the next verse, verse 33, shows us how ingrained this prideful independence is rooted in Peter. Peter is convinced he's going to contribute something. He's convinced. Verse 33, little children, Jesus says, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So verse 36, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but afterward you will follow. And then of course, verse 37, yet Peter's convinced. Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. He's unaware of his weakness. He's unaware of his inability to follow through with his great good intentions. But he's committed to contributing something. It took three denials for Peter to finally break. Three denials for him finally to break and realize I'm weak. Beautiful, competent, successful people contribute. That's how the world works. Beautiful, competent, successful people contribute. And Jesus says, no. No, because only I can pay the sacrifice on the cross to break your independent spirit. You can't contribute to that. You can't contribute to the breaking of your independent spirit. Only I, Jesus says, only I can do that on the cross through my unique death, sacrificial death, death that doesn't get repeated. That I break you of your independent spirit, deliver you from addiction to self, and take away your sin. Now, here's the question. How does Jesus' unique sacrificial death, that's what he means when he says, I'm going where you can't come. I'm going to do something you can't do. I'm going to do something for you. How does his unique sacrificial death empower you to overcome betrayal? Two ways. First, it takes away the motivation for betrayal. Jesus' unique sacrificial death takes away the motivation for betrayal. Because remember, the essence of betrayal is I am going to hurt you to get something for myself. When you're united to Jesus in his death and resurrection, you no longer have need to preserve yourself to avoid suffering, to pad your bank account, 
to avoid isolation, to make a name for yourself, to make an image for yourself. You no longer have to do that. Why? Because when you're united to Jesus, he becomes your image. He becomes your success. He becomes your wealth. He becomes your friend. All the things you need are met in him. He takes away the motivation for betrayal. And then second is it takes away the sting of betrayal. Some of you have felt the sting of betrayal and it hurts. Jesus takes away the sting because now you have someone that can absolutely understand what you've been through, absolutely sympathize with you. And so betrayal doesn't wreck you. And if you're the one that has done the betraying, Jesus takes away the guilt because he says, you're forgiven. You don't have to carry that anymore. You're forgiven. Years ago, I was over a decade ago, directing a youth outreach ministry in Charlotte, North Carolina. And as part of the outreach, I coached football in, in, in the local public high school. I was one of the assistant coaches. And one week we were about to play our crosstown rival, Butler Bulldogs. Well, the, the outreach ministry was based out of a church that had a youth ministry with kids that went to different churches. And so there was one kid in our youth group, Josh, who played on Butler's football team. So we played him at their house. We got there, and, and when we came out of the locker rooms with the teams ready to storm the field and run through the cute poster and rip it apart and rah-rah, we're standing there ready to do that. And the locker rooms were right next to each other. So we come out, and the teams are standing, you know, right next to each other, coaches. And I see Josh, and he sees me, smile, and I walk over, and, and I shake his hand, and he shakes my hand, and, you know, we talked a little bit. Played the game. That following week, Wednesday night at youth group, Josh comes up to me. He pulls me aside with tears in his eyes and says, Keith, I need to ask your forgiveness. I said, Josh, for what? He said, well, last week during practice, I was with some of my friends on the football team and they were talking trash about your team. And they were talking trash about the coaching staff specifically. And he said, I knew, I knew you were a coach there. And he said, I joined in. And he said, I betrayed you. Now, he was crushed by it. Tears in his eyes. Now, why over a decade later do I, I still remember that conversation? Because this was a young follower of Christ who was shocked at what he did to fit in. Absolutely shocked that he would betray a youth worker, a man he loved to death in a moment. He was shocked. And I believe as a young follower of Christ, he was shocked because he, he didn't think he was capable of that. And it wrecked him. May we not be shocked at what we are capable of doing in marriage, in our families, in our workplaces. May we understand and believe that we are capable of the most horrendous betrayal if we're walking pridefully independently of Christ. And may that understanding of what we are capable of drive us 
to surrender in submission on our knees in prayer before Christ, that we would not say, I've got this, that on our knees before Christ, we would say, Jesus, you have to have this because I know what I'm capable of. I know what I'm capable of. Eventually, Peter did lay his life down for Christ. Eventually, he did lay his life down, but he did so as a broken, humble, dependent man. In fact, in John 21, after Jesus rises from the dead and he reinstates Peter into ministry, he says this to Peter in verses 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. Now, I believe this is Jesus' kind way of saying to Peter, Peter, when you were young, you dressed yourself, walked where you wanted. In other words, you were pridefully independent. You thought you had everything covered, that you could do everything, that you really didn't need me. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go, Peter. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. About 34 years later, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter would find his hands being stretched out on a cross where Peter was crucified. Now, how do you go from a man who betrayed Jesus in an effort to preserve his life to a man who laid his life down for the glory of God. How does such a transformation take place? It's Jesus' love displayed supremely on the cross and by his resurrection. You see, Jesus' love does one of two things. It either hardens you like Judas or it softens you like it did Peter and transforms you so that no longer is it about what do I need to do to preserve my life, but how can I lay my life down for the glory of my Savior? That's a work of the Holy Spirit. That's a work of the Holy Spirit through men and women and children who are surrendered to Christ, expressing that dependence in prayer. May we be a people who are, in our knee, are on our knees in prayer independence on Jesus Christ, surrender to him that he by his spirit would give us his strength that would prompt us to lay our lives down for the glory of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you our prideful independence. We confess to you that we overestimate our strength and underestimate our weakness, that we are far weaker and more sinful and more addicted to self than we would ever know. And Father, would you prompt us as a people and as a church because of that to fall to our knees before you, to live our lives in constant, conscious dependence 
and communion with you, Jesus, recognizing that apart from you, we know we will betray. We know we will serve self. We know we will preserve self. Holy Spirit, would you change us? Would you soften us? Would you break us? That we would gladly lay down our lives for the glory of a kind and wonderful and compassionate Savior. Jesus, we love you. We long to serve you. And we ask you to do by your spirit what we're unable to do ourselves. Father, as we close in worship, would you lift our voices to you, the King, and to your son, Jesus, who is at your right hand. And in even worshiping you with a posture of dependence and a posture of surrender, would you begin doing that work that would cause us to lay down our lives? And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.